So if anybody wants to interview me or photograph me, feel thank you very much. Well, it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe. You don't know by now. Ain't no use to sit and wonder why. It'll never do anyhow. Roosters crowing at the break of dawn Look out my window I'll be gone You're the reason I'm traveling on Don't think twice It's alright Ain't no use in turning on that light well, I'd have never known Ain't no use in turning on that light I'm on the dark side of the road Wishing, wondering Way down the road I loved a woman Child, I'm told I gave her my heart But she wanted my soul And calling out my name Like you never did before Ain't no use in calling out my name I can't hear you anymore Wish there was something you would do or say Try to make me change my mind and stay We never did much talking anyway Don't think twice, it's alright So long, goodbye honey baby Where I'm bound I can't tell Goodbye is too good of a word I'll just say fairly well Wish there was something you could do or say Try to make me change my mind and stay We never did much talking anyway It's all right. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, Ed, thanks a lot for coming. Thank you for having me. And one of the things I like to usually start with, I try to ask somebody where, where, is their, where they're from, where, who their parents are, where did you grow up? I grew up in the south side of Chicago, originally a neighborhood called Chatham. Then we moved to South Shore. 
And were your parents at all musical? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I, I heard my dad uh, whistle the Battle Hymn of the Republic once uh, while he fell asleep during a Cubs game. I thought that was a pretty good trick. Uh, my mom had records when we were kids of uh, Al Jolson records, his 78s. And she liked music. In fact, she used to go to the 8th Street Theater as a young girl, uh, which was uh, actually uh, before uh, the Grand Ole Opry. We had the 8th Street Theater. They had Homer and Jethro and Gene Autry and Lula Bell and Scotty. That was the home of country music, 8th and Michigan. And so, she, yeah, she liked, she liked that music. 8th yeah. Michigan. 8th and Michigan. It was called the 8th Street Theater. Did you ever go? Oh no, that was way before my time. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not. I'm old, but not that. <laughs> Take it easy. Uh, yeah. So, so the, yeah, she liked me. She liked entertainment. She, she, uh, she never played records. So she, I think she was in love with Italian singers, because she had all these records of um, Vic Damone, uh, Dean Martin. And um, who was the guy in The Godfather? El, El Martino. Uh -huh. And they were never played. She just had, she bought these records for their pictures. <laughs> she was, <laughs> but they, they were in primo condition when she passed away, you know, because never played once. But she appreciated entertainment a lot, mm -hmm. yeah. So. And were there any folk records around? How did how did that? No, kind of music no, that's find my you? brother Fred. Uh -huh. <clears throat> um, uh, there's four years difference, and what happened was uh, he started bringing some records home, like '51 and '52, and there was a period there uh, just prior to rock and roll where there was all these novelty records, um, like uh, uh, Guy Mitchell had about eight hits on these songs like She Wears Red Feathers in a Hooli Hooli Skirt and um, uh, How Much Is That Doggy in the Window and there's all these songs and but we love Guy, Freddie loved Guy Mitchell and he's a great singer and uh, he did songs like uh, 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 The Roving Kind which the Weavers cover too mm -hmm. and it was just as the big band era was ending and rock and roll hadn't come in yet and Fred started he, bringing these 78s home, and I wanted to buy a 78 too. You know, if he had one, I should have one. And this is just before record stores started to blossom. You got records in um, Marshall Fields had a department, Carson Peary Scott, they all had record departments. And there was a store at 79th and Langley, it was an appliance store, and they had a record department in the back. So I remember going in there. Now, I was only five years old, but I was already into show business. I, mean, I, I really, my first record was, and, the, and I remember the, it, was, it was so much fun because there were 78s and they had the, uh, you didn't see the picture of the artist at all. You know what they looked like. Um, it was um, <clears throat> Tony Bennett doing Cold, Cold Heart, the Hank Williams song. It was a big hit. And the other side was from Rags to Riches. Uh -huh. So I loved it, right? I loved the records and I loved the whole thing. And, and, but Fred brought me into music and, and uh, there was only a four year difference. So he started buying records and bringing them home, you know, with our allowance or whatever. 
But by the time I was eight or nine, then the record stores started to come around, and there was a big record store at 70th and Halstead with a wonderful guy named George Silo, and he had the big record store. Now the baby boomers are starting to blossom and be around, and high school kids are interested, and they have disposable income now. So George had this, it's called the House of Music, and uh, we would go in there like every week. And he he really appreciated our enthusiasm for, for music. So he, he would show us some things every once in a while. And I was buying, when I could, I would buy Little Richard Records and Fats Domino. I liked the Afro-American singers mm -hmm. more. Fred liked the balladeers, Rusty Draper and Gogi Grant. But the, there was a Calypso craze that came about in 57. And it was actually the, f the first interracial trio had a hit record. And they was the people in the trio were Alan Arkin, the actor, mm -hmm. um, Eric Darling, mm -hmm. great accompanist, and an uh, Afro-American guy by the name of Bob Carey. And they had a song called the Banana Boat Song, Hill and Gully Rider. Do you remember that, Mark? It was a big hit, yeah. <laughs> Hill and gully rider, hill and gully. And that was really the first folk music. Prior to that was the Weavers, uh -huh. but then because of their problems, they, they disappeared pretty much in right. terms of pop music. They came out through the Vanguard records, but this was, this was just two guitars and a banjo, and there was a guy named Vince Martin that had a hit called Cindy O' Cindy. But the Terriers, they were a big group for a couple of years with, uh, with Alan Arkin. And so the Calypso thing was happening, which was folk music, if you think about it. And that attracted us. Uh, but then uh, George, the owner, said to Fred, you know, I, I, you like Calypso music. There's this guy named Bob Gibson who just made a record for Decca called Marching to Pretoria. It's kind of like that, not quite. He also has an album on Riverside called Offbeat Folk Songs, and he's a banjo player. Now, up to that point, this is 57, I'm listening to all the stuff that's available, whether it be Bo Diddley or... Uh, I wasn't that nuts about Elvis. There was only a few people they didn't like out, but I, I liked a lot of stuff. And uh, But I was getting bored with that rock and roll. It was all the same thing. It was like... Bebop. I love you, baby, bebop. I don't mean baby, bebop. I love you, baby, I'm sticking with you. Or it's bebop-a-loo, she's my baby, bebop-a-loo. I don't mean maybe, I mean, how much do you take of that, you know? <laughs> so Fred brings home this record, and it's offbeat folk song. This guy's playing a five-string banjo. And I, I thought of banjo as Eddie Peabody, you know. And I knew who the Weavers were from the radio from 52, because I I, my first love when I was, again, five years old, I was very, you know, forward thinking. And uh, her name was Irene K. Walls, and it was a song called Goodnight Irene. I remember hearing that, but I didn't think of Pete Seeger or banjo. But 57, this record was, and it had a banjo on it, and he was doing, I don't have my banjo with him, but he's doing songs like, like a modal tuning. Uh -huh. 
Oh, my Lula, my gal, my Lula, I guess. Better be making that wedding dress, wedding dress, wedding dress. Better be making that wedding dress. You know, it took me 50 years to figure that one out. You know, she was 13, and let's get, let's get to it here. You know? uh, but it was fascinating, and they had these these long songs and uh, with uh, cowboy songs that were authentic cowboy songs, real cowboy songs. And this Gibson record was just great, and I loved the banjo, the five-string banjo. So that started it for us, and, uh, and then, you know, then came, uh, I remember uh, Fred brought home a record with Alan Lomax and Peggy Seeger, it was just fantastic. And then we heard of Pete Seeger on the radio singing The Farmer's Cursed Wife. I'll never forget so that. So he's, he's back on, this is before being blacklisted? Well, he was blacklisted from, from major media outlets, but uh, uh, he played concerts all over, and he could be on FM radio, and we're listening to FM radio. There was a professor, Bob Cosby, that had a radio show. Uh, he was an English uh, t uh, professor at uh, Roosevelt, and he had a half an hour show because folk music was starting to come up there on FM radio. And there was all these different shows. Uh, this is 1958, 59. Mm -hmm. And of course there was the Midnight Special. So heard Pete doing Farmer's Curse Wife and wow, this is, you know. And then I, I just, I, every time I had some dough together, I would just go to the record store and buy another record. Then I was in uh, seventh grade uh, at a Kiva Jewish day school, and I was a miserable student. I never caused any problem. All I wanted to do was find a way to fall asleep without being caught. <laughs> and I was pretty successful. But there was this teacher there that was maybe 22 years old, and I was 10, and she was going to the Gate of Horn, listening to Bob Gibson and Odetta. And the fact that I liked Nobody else in my class knew who these people were, but I was aware of these people. I was aware of the Gator Horn, and uh, so she let me conduct a class, and I brought out all the records I could. And, uh, she was real sweet, Mrs. Kaplan. So I was just obsessed, and then she told me, you know, you can go to the library downtown and take out records. Mm -hmm. So I started going down to the library every Saturday, and I'd find Frontier Ballads by Pete Seeger, I found the Library of Congress records, mm -hmm. Lead Belly's last sessions, and that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to do any homework or I didn't want to do chores. I just wanted to sit and listen to these records. Now, was Fred going to the library too? Or was that <clears throat> no, more Fred was, was already a hoodlum by then, uh, so he, <laughs> he, was, he was stealing cars and stuff like that. <laughs> No, he, uh, you know, when you're four years older, that's a big difference, you know. So, no, he was definitely into folk music. <clears throat> but he was starting to, uh, we, were, we had a, the worst guitar you could, I can't believe I'm playing guitar today, uh, that I didn't give up. So they had these plywood guitars. They were horrible. They're like playing dobros, you know. And we had a shitty part. Oh, oh, <laughs> Get it out of your system, man. A real. <laughs> hope there's a delay here. We had this horrible banjo, a K banjo. 
I mean, I, I just, I couldn't wait when we saw Pete Seeger for the first time. I was so excited about seeing Pete Seeger. I was excited about seeing his banjo, like a real banjo, mm -hmm. you know, that this mm -hmm. piece of crud that we had. Uh, so we're both into it, you uh -huh. know, but he was, he was the older brother doing stuff. And, and I was just so content to go down to the library every Saturday and take out records, whatever I could find, you know, and I, I would, uh, I would drive my friends crazy, like they'd have a birthday party for somebody and they'd have the, rec the record player hooked up to the sound system as outdoors, you know, and I have a record of chain gang music. <laughs> you know? and, uh, they want to hear Bobby Rydell and Frankie Evelyn. I go, oh, no, wait till you hear this. You go, oh, rope, boom, bam. You know, it's a bunch of, you know, well, what was convicts. It was on uh, Tradition. It was called Pete Seeger recorded. It was music from uh, Angola Prison. Uh -huh. One of the toughest. And, and they want to dance to Venus. I love you. you know. <laughs> no, you want to hear this? Or I, I put on, one time I put on a Library of Congress record. Oh, man, that was rough. And uh, they didn't talk to me for the rest. But I didn't care. I loved it so much. Was it was it just was it really like that? Just kind of you and your brother and everyone else was. Doing it was hard. It was so hard to. Oh yeah, it was really for me particularly. There's a little misconception. The people who really got into folk music were uh, were the people who were six years older than me. Uh huh. Because um, they were in high school when the the terriers came around and then the Kingston Trio. So Bob Dylan's age, mm -hmm. Tom Rush, those guys graduated mm -hmm. from high school in 59. Okay. They were the guys that were really into folk music. And I'm, I'm a kid, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, my, my pals didn't, their parents, I go to their parents' house and I look through their record collection. And uh, if they had a Pete Seeger record, which a lot of them did, a lot of Jewish parents uh -huh. love Pete Seeger, you know, and the Weavers. Because uh, they were all communists, you know, so they were... <laughs> Like red diaper babies, <laughs> so I go. I, I figure, but the the kids did it, uh -huh. you know. Let, later on with Peter Paul and Mary and stuff, but I felt sort of like uh, I just wanted to be around people that were like-minded. So uh, I I found a place uh, in Hyde Park called the Fret Shop at 57 and Stony when I got to high school. Even in high school, there it was hard to find someone that liked the New Lost City Ramblers. Uh -huh wasn't like today where people are really into this stuff people have a misconception there was the folk music and the uh, you know like the brothers four and all those groups that they had 25 members in them like the new christy minstrels and stuff like that i did like both uh, commercial music and more traditional music i liked it all uh -huh. i didn't like the the christy minstrels and the brothers four but i love the kingston trio mm -hmm. but i also you know uh i like to listen to Library of Congress records and and uh, the, the the people who really impressed me were the people who took that music and kind of made it their own and that was people like Jim Queskin mm -hmm. and Jeff Moldar people from around Cambridge Massachusetts uh, Tom Rush you know uh, Eric von Schmidt they were taking songs from the, the um, Library of Congress right. which had great value but they were making them more accessible I think you know and, and making them more appealing to the average well to me I wasn't the average person there was 20 of us that was it 
Do you think twenty were, average people? Yeah. Was it different than Chicago? Then it might have been on the East Coast. Chicago was uh, Bob Gibson was the hero here in yeah. Chicago, and Bob was wonderful, big influence on me. But he was very slick. Mm -hmm. He was a real good entertainer. Right. And the clubs, he was the king of of folk music here in Chicago. The Old Town School would have concerts every once in a while with a more traditional people. Uh, George and Jerry Armstrong had a series, so they would bring in people like Grandpa Jones and Jimmy Driftwood, Doc Watson. It wasn't until uh, Richard Harding, who owned The Quiet Night, who had really good taste in music, he was the first nightclub owner who would really bring in those people. Brought in Doc Watson, Gary Davis, uh, those people were relegated to the UFC festival mm -hmm. or concerts or out there in Lake Forest. But Bob was the, everybody wanted to be Bob Gibson. And he, and he was wonderful. I mean, he introduced a lot of people to folk music. He had a very front-ended career. Um, and uh, he had his problems. He had a, a serious drug addiction for a lot of years. I, and he was of a different age, too. He was born in 31, you know, so... And Bob Dylan comes along, you right. know, and then, and, and, and Bob had trouble with his career, but he always did something important, Bob Gibson. But a lot of people will point to him and say, other than Pete Seeger, he got a lot of people in the folk music. Now, are you playing guitar at this time, or are you still just listening I'm to I'm struggling records? around. I, what I did was I found this, uh, I was in high school, and this guy, Pete Adler, told me about this place called the Fred Shop in Hyde Park. This is before the Old Town Folklore Center opened up. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I started to work at, but that's later on. But there was no folklore center in Chicago. There's this little shop at 57th and Stony Island. Mm -hmm. um, and the, uh, Pete Adler told me, you know, you can go in there. You can spend the whole day there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can play every instrument you want. You hang out. People are, there are a lot of good players there. Older guys play. I thought he was exaggerating, you know. It's a little place that wasn't that big. And it was owned by this wonderful guy, Pete Leibengoof, who was a guitar repairman. And so I went in there and I pretended like, when you went in the line in the healing, you wanted to play a guitar, uh -huh. they'd have a salesman follow you around. And right. then you had to, you know, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Get over it, you know, have birthday, big deal. <laughs> you know what? Wait till you're 69, you won't be celebrating your birthday. Now. You're looking for it 70, yeah. Happy birthday. Anyway. So I figured I, I'm looking for people to be around, you know, that like this stuff, other than my brother Fred, who he's in and out all the time. And so I thought Pete was exaggerating. So I walked into the Fred shop. I'll never forget it. I was 14 years old, and there was a guy there, Randy Lewis, and he's playing guitar, you know, on the, and all these great guitars and banjos. And I saw a real live Vega banjo, long neck banjo. And I pretended like I was gonna buy something. I didn't need to, mm -hmm. but Randy Lewis, he puts a guitar down and he leaves. Then I'm playing a Gibson guitar and oh my God, it sounds so beautiful. And then Pete comes from the back, he was working on an instrument. I swear to God, he said to me, I never met him. He said, son, are you gonna be here for a while? I said, yeah, for the rest of my life, if you let me. He said, I'm gonna go grab a sandwich, watch the store. 
for real. <laughs> so I decided this is when the school year ended and summer came around, I'm going to go there every single day. I went there every single day. I got up, took a bus to Hyde Park to the fret shop when they opened, and I stayed there till five o'clock every day. And there was back then; it was real difficult to learn anything. It's unlike today; mm -hmm. it's easy to learn stuff because you had like 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds who were UFC students who were like really smart kids, mm -hmm. you know, and they played really great. They were just disgusting people. You know. <laughs> They're already playing, you know, New Lost City Ramblers double thumbing on the banjo and they're playing the hell out of the fiddle. None of them became professional. They were all like biochemists or they <laughs> help invent another bomb or something. They were just, but they played so great, but they were five years older than you. Uh -huh. So I kind of kept my mouth shut and I was like a fly in the wall and just, I was happy to be near anybody. Occasionally, I would start a conversation with one of these people. And then, a guy walks in, a Jewish-looking guy, kind of chubby with curly hair, and he p picks up the guitar. He looks like he owns the place. And he's playing, I can't believe that anybody, he was, he was I think, 18 years old, 17 or 18. That's a big difference when you're 14. Right. And I couldn't believe this guy. It was Michael Bloomfield. Oh, wow. And he had just got th thrown out of the last high school you can get thrown out of before prison. <laughs> he went to, he got thrown out, he was, um, what's the, a new trier. And he got, he went to Central YMCA High School. And he, he quit there. And he was living as a 17-year-old with a girl from uh, Jeffrey Manor in an apartment, and he was living in Hyde Park. <clears throat> the rumor was, it wasn't more than a rumor, his parents were very wealthy, mm -hmm. and they just gave him money to stay away, or something, I don't know. <laughs> but he was, he was there every day. So I'm sitting, watching him play Gary Davis, Mississippi John Hurt, unbelievable stuff. And he has friends, and they all play great. So I spend the whole summer doing that. Could, could you give an example of the sort of stuff? Could you play something? Well, oh, I can't that play like, uh, like him, but right. he would. What I did learn was, um, of like this John Henry business. You know, I I was playing guitar at that time, like, like that. You know, I didn't uh -huh. know you could do. I was starting to finger pick, but I didn't know you could. I wasn't doing that back then. Uh, but he was doing that. Now, do, da, da, da. And I said, what are you doing? Because I didn't know you can play inside the chord like that. Mm -hmm. So he he was sweet. He would show uh -huh. me stuff. When the, there wasn't a lot of people around, he would, hey, kid, let me show you this thing I'm doing here. He was very nice. I saw him many years. I saw him a couple years later. He was managing the Fickle Pickle Coffee House. Uh -huh. And I was there. And he was talking about the night that uh, Bob Dylan told him to come to New York. They wanted to put a band together, you know. And my brother Fred knew him. He was a, quite a how, character. How did, how did he feel? Was he was he was it a big deal to him? Or no, or he was. Uh, you know, he was he, to him. He was a real character. I, Bob Dylan was lucky to have him. That's right. the way. He, I mean, he was. You know, 
he came from entitlement mm-hmm. and he but he was uh, he was so funny and and sweet you know uh-huh. I, yeah he was a real he was brilliant yeah. I, I think he had some i think that's why he got on the heroin yeah because his mind he just something was going on there all the time um he i heard he couldn't sleep or whatever but i was around him back then and then the fickle pickle was around him i talked to him to, three days before he died of an overdose when we opened up our club mm-hmm. and he sort of remembered me got me a little confused with fred and we we're going to have him at the club and uh-huh. then he died three days later but he was a wonderfully enthusiastic guy he just he loved what he was doing all the time and he could do all kinds of stuff i remember one time my brother fred was playing at an open mic at the fickle pickle and he was doing hobo's lullaby and bloomfield uh-huh. picked up some guitar that was you know some ratty guitar and island string guitar and just sat there and played like segovia behind him he was, i never saw anybody like that uh-huh. yeah but he could do it all now now but he you know went went and did electric stuff and all that were you ever tempted as a musician to go never not, never it doesn't no seem to i would never want to carry that equipment there's no way <laughs> too complicated I, I was thinking about becoming a stand-up comic i didn't want to carry this with me <laughs> what is it wear wear nice suits and carry a notebook and a cigar that was, <laughs> no i never had any urge to do that at all no, i like the sound of the acoustic guitar it's about as electric as i get right here now going back to the bluefield thing now this is 61 and 62 so there's this is all folk folk music bluefield right. was playing a lot of bluegrass yeah. back then bluegrass and some blues uh-huh. but he would come in and talk about how they spend the evening at big uh at a place on the west side him and paul butterfield and they were talking about blues singers i knew who big bill brunzi was right. and and brownie and 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 uh, lightning hopkins but the, the the music he was talking about was not exp- you couldn't buy that in a regular record store mm-hmm. there weren't a lot of muddy waters records or uh uh, uh, any of the Elmore James and that these uh-huh. guys, so they were getting into a whole nother thing with the rhythm and blues. In mm-hmm. fact, they had these this group Bloomfield put together with um, Butterfield, and they didn't know what to call the music, so it was called the the Twist Party at the UFC. Hmm. I didn't always hall every Wednesday with Paul Butterfield, Michael Bloomfield come and hear dance to the Twist Party. They called it the Twist. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so anyway, so then after that, the Old Town Folklore uh-huh. Center opened up. My brother Fred got a job there, mm-hmm. and then he was already starting to perform, and then I took his job. And, then and what sort of what was the first song during this time where you just kind of had something? Are you playing? You're playing yet? No, no, not still yet. Not no. uh-huh. I'm going to these um, open mics at okay. the Pickle Pickle. Um, I, I had a little duo with a guy named Carmi Simon, who's a, another guy who was very talented. Uh, he became a pretty accomplished accompanist and a guitar maker in L.A. And we did about a few songs together. I played the banjo. I started out on the banjo, basically, uh-huh. more than the guitar. I was uh, a guy. Bought, I put some money together and bought a banjo from the Folklore Center. And I played mostly banjo. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I, I don't think I even brought a guitar with me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was playing a little bit, but not not a lot. 
Can you give us an example, though, the kind of music you were? Can we play, do a song of something well, yeah, that you I were kind of into at that time? I did the cuckoo, uh-huh. but I didn't do it. I did an banjo. Sounds like at that point, then you're starting to fall into a community of people. You found you well, the school, the yeah. school was like because uh, it was it was uh, much smaller at that time. This but is I, the old town school, old or town the school. Okay. Well, that was owned by the old town school, the folklore center. It was connected. Uh, right. Okay. And they owned Where it. Where was it? It okay. was at three thirty three West North Avenue. So you had to take a little bit of a trek to come up here, right? I loved it. I, I took the IC from South Shore after school. And it was exciting to me because, uh, you know, I I thought Chicago ended at Randolph, Michigan, you know. <laughs> so I get off at Randolph, Michigan. I keep going north down Michigan Avenue and go through Rush Street and then go through Old Town. These are areas I didn't know. Uh-huh. And I, go, I get to work on a school at 6 o'clock and I work till 11 o'clock at night and I'd walk back through uh, on Clark Street and Michigan, wherever you know. So you're a is, cashier. You're working at. No, the, I was a guitar desk salesman. You're a salesman. Yeah, okay. yeah, salesman. I can see that. Actually, I really admire these guys who have. Been, yeah. We, I worked there. It was me and Art theme, and <clears throat> we were always out of stuff. The only thing we weren't out of was takeout menus to pizza joints around the neighborhood. We always had plenty of those. But we wrote, worked for a guy named John Carbo, who was like a father to us. He was a banjo instructor there, him and Fleming Brown. Uh, John taught bluegrass banjo, wonderful guy. And, uh, you know, he hired guys like my brother Fred, who were performers. There wasn't a lot of pressure to, you know, we kind of goofed off a lot. Had a recording studio there. 
And I was just excited. I was 17 years old, and I'm working. People like, you know, Studs Terkel and Bob Gibson and are coming in, and I'm working. Basically, my boss ultimately is Wynn, you know. So I became uh, very close to a lot of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, were the, at, that, at that time, these people, are, I mean, now we think we all know these people. Would those have been people your parents knew or that your friends would have known about? Well, I think everybody in in Chicago at one time took a guitar lesson at the Old Town School. My parents were very uh, uh, glad that we, it was a very uh, healthy experience for us, Mm -hmm. you know, for a kid. Uh, And and, uh, because they were just all nice people. The school did not have a political bent to it, really. Uh, It was open to everybody. It's very much like it is now. Right. I mean, it was very, you know, there, there, you know, when you look at the school, it's not like Second City where million stars came out of. Right. You know, it was never meant to be that. It's more accessible now in a lot of ways than it was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh, whatever, uh, we were close to Dawn Greening. When was around and not around, you know, we saw him every once in a while. But Dawn Greening was uh, like a, second mother to us and she, she you know she knew our parents and uh, she was wonderful what happened re- actually is I I, I, co- I was kind of a nervy little fella and I thought I learned a few chords I was doing I am old and lonesome traveler I am old and I figure I'm ready <laughs> so I called up I figure I'm going to call up all these people that are. I call up, I'm looking for Studs Turco. I saw Lewis Turco in the phone book, so I figure eh, it might be Studs Turco. <laughs> so I called Lewis Turco and I asked him, "How do I get into the folk music business?" And he said, "It's not a business, kid." And I said, "How about it? it's a field? It's not a field either." And I, he told me to call Win Strachey. So. I called Wynn Strachey, and I, he was very nice. And he said, why don't you talk to Dawn Greening? Well, this is 1960, I was 13 years old. This was before my brother Fred went down there. He went down there a year later. So I called up Dawn Greening, and I said, I, I'm a young folk singer, and uh, <laughs> I knew three chords. <laughs> and she was so sweet. She said, why don't you come down here? And you know, show you around, and, and maybe you do something. So I, I don't know how to get there. Uh-huh. See, in the South Side, we had four numbers: seventy-eight, thirty-six, eighty-three, thirty. This is three thirty-three West North Avenue. I don't. Know. How do you get there? Where's that? You got to have one more number. So, I, I, I. I Get out downtown, I got in the subway, and I talked to somebody, and they said, we'll take this train to take to Clybourne. Uh-huh. And I go to Clybourne, and I get up, and that, it doesn't, it looked a lot different back then than it does now. Nothing but liquor stores. It looked like, like a skid row. Yeah. And I was scared. I said, well, where the hell am I? I've never been there before. And uh, I, I said, well, I'm gonna go east. I kept going east. I'm looking for a school. I mean, uh, with monkey bars, you know, and school uniforms. And I kept going by it. 
because it was like on the second floor. Uh-huh. I think the Communist Party was on the fourth floor. <laughs> and I, I got almost to uh, Wells, I guess it was Well Street, and I, I was almost in tears. And I looked, I saw the lake, and I, I walked back, and I saw Arvella Gray, a blind uh-huh. blues singer. Now, you wouldn't have seen that guy in South Shore in 1963, so I figured I was kind of close. <laughs> So I went back and I saw the sign, the little signs with the banjo and guitar, 333, and I found it. And I went upstairs. Arvella Gray was hanging out there too? He was on the corner there. You uh, know. He just had? Just had, was, had. It was a very interesting neighborhood. It was, I mean, it was a very diverse neighborhood. Uh-huh. Uh, they had Mexican restaurants. I never heard of a taco before I got down there. Again, I'm from South Shore. It's a Jewish and Irish neighborhood. Uh-huh. Exotic food was Chinese food. That's it. There's a Hungarian restaurant in the corner. This was a very odd neighborhood to be in. The Plaza Theater, you know, across the street. There was a bohemian feel to it. And anyway, so I found it. I go upstairs, and there's Dawn, and she was just just so sweet. Never forget, she was had that palm oil cigarette hanging out of her mouth, and the smell of coffee and cigarette smoke which I still dream of. <laughs> and she, uh, they used, she used to go to a bakery across the street. She was cutting up the, you know, the sweet rolls or whatever. And she was very nice to me. She, could, she saw I put a sport coat on. I wanted to look a little older. She saw I was this dumb kid, you know, that probably knew three chords. And she told me, why don't you go visit some classes? You know, this and that, and I went to some classes. And then I, that second half, now Frank Hamilton to me, this guy was the, the, the most important guy in the world. He had made a record with Pete Seeger. He was, he accompanied everybody at the Newport Folk Festival. Him and Spike Lee's father, Bill Lee, were the go-to guys for folk singers. And so just to meet, just to see Frank Hamilton in person. So he does his second half, and he does this, he does this song, I'll never forget. I'm gonna tell God how you treat me. And he went, I said, what is that? <laughs> I said, I better not get near this stuff. I'm just gonna be, <laughs> I never heard of a bass run. You know, people are playing guitar like, like that. You know, they're whacking at the guitar. and. There was uh, Frank, and there was Eric Darling, a guy named uh, Dick Rosmini, and that was about pretty much it. Who could really play guitar well. And uh, I just had my bar mitzvah a couple months before, and uh, so I went up to, uh, to Frank to ask him his advice on folk music. And he looked at my bar mitzvah pen, and he said, you're Jewish. I said, yeah. he said, you know, there's a lot of great Jewish music out there. And I go, oh, I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> I want to tell me about Cisco Houston, you know. But he was very sweet. And then what happened was Dawn said to me, come here for a second. Do me a favor. Will you tell the boys that were ready? The boys happened to be the Clancy brothers and Tommy Makeham. They were in town for two weeks. The Gator Horn, their opening act was Maya Angelo. She was a Calypso singer. Maya Angelo was a Calypso singer. She opened up for the... Now, the Clancy Brothers 
I didn't even know they were in the building. <laughs> and I got to go tell them that they're ready. Because they were going to do what they used to do. They play the Gator Horn for two weeks, Wednesday through Sunday. A lot of times Frank would play behind them. He was a house accompanist. And they would come by and, and do a couple songs for the the students and, and um, drum up some business and, you know. So I had a, I, they were in a room and I opened up the room and I went, hey fellas, <laughs> they're ready for you. <laughs> My legs are shaking. And, and I, I'll never forget leaving there at four o'clock in the afternoon. Thinking, I got to come back to this. This is wonderful. And I got back home and a year later, Fred uh, started uh, working at this folklore center and he got to know everybody. and. He was in a, a group with John Carbone mm -hmm. that originally started with Roger McGuinn, then Guy Gilbert. Uh, so I became very close to those people and made a lot of friends through the through the school. Mm -hmm. You know. Did you start? Were you taking classes as well, or were you just I, hanging out? I, I went to Fleming's class a couple uh -huh. times, but I was just hanging out. Well, you know, I worked at the store, so you could, you know. Now Fleming was a, a big thing to us because. The first, uh, I mentioned that Bob Gibson record. Talk, talk a little bit about yeah, who Fleming was, too. Well, oh, Fle Fleming was a, a commercial artist. Right. He had a regular job and a good one. And he was uh, part of a very small group of people that, were in, that played old-timey music. I mean, it just wasn't... Even the barn dance, it was very much commercial mm -hmm. country music. And Fleming was one of the few that played that old time Uncle Dave Megan, you know, Rascal Holcomb. Was he from Chicago? Or was he, he was from, from Missouri originally, uh -huh. and he had a wonderful voice. Uh, he was uh, he dabbled in performing. He was a part of the Comfort to Sing uh, gang over at uh, the Blue Note Jazz Club every Monday. He replaced Larry Lane. It was him, Big Bill, Wynn. And studs, and uh, but the the Bob Gibson record I mentioned with the song Lula Gal, on the back it said I le learned this song from my friend Fleming Brown, a city Billy. Mm -hmm. So I mean there's Fleming Brown. So we knew who Fle Fleming had been to Newport, you know. So he was a big thing to us, and he taught at the school. In fact, we knew we we heard him before he even frailed. He was up picking. He started frailing later on, and uh, he was a charming guy, and we got we got to know him. Uh, so I was I was very you know taken with the whole thing. I'm 17, 18 years old, and I'm around these Bob Gibson would come in every once in a while. And, um, it was a, a real important job for a high school kid. Everybody wanted that job, but I got it because of Fred. Uh, but uh, Fleming was in and out all the time. Um, he used to like to get married a lot, as I remember. <laughs> when, that, when that didn't work out, he came back and taught lessons. <laughs> what were the sort of songs he was teaching? Can you, can you give an example? Oh, I'll never example oh boy, I'll never forget. One night, there was a guy named, uh, 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 there was a uh, guy who was a, 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 a messenger, uh -huh. and he saw a guitar, and Dawn was there, and he said, I'm from Kentucky. And she said, well, go play something. You know, she was like that. And he, this guy knew 150 verses of Old Blue. <laughs> His name was Billy Chips. Billy Chipman. 
and he was a wonderful singer from Kentucky. He was, I, I wouldn't say, he, he was kind of challenged, you know, he had all these different jobs. He was a sweet guy. People, I think, took advantage of him, but he found a home there. And then, I guess, when Pete came into town, he met Billy Chips, and Billy Chips sang him the 150 verses, and he listened to every one of them. But he was there one night, I'll never forget, it was 1964, my last year of high school. It was a Thursday night. The place was very busy back then. And Fleming, Billy Chips did a couple songs, and then Fleming did Walking Boss. And it was the first time I heard Walking Boss, and it was just wonderful. Yeah. Could you play that for us? Oh, no, I, I need a not banjo a guitar, for that, yeah. and a guitar, yeah. I, yeah. Uh -huh. But uh, it was something like... Walking balls, walking balls, walking. Yeah, I could do it all time. I gotta get the guitar to sound like an old banjo and mountain tuning. Boy, it was in tune when I bought it. <laughs> That's an old joke. start performing a uh -huh. little bit I was uh, there was a place called the arena pizza on Well Street and uh, I got a gig there I got my first gig there to ten dollars 
and, and, and uh, a pizza is a pizza place. It was actually an old apartment turned into a coffee house. It was, it was called, okay. it's called Arena Pizza, <laughs> and uh, I, oh, I was so excited. <laughs> I got to work with uh, some wonderful, I got, I got to meet Terry Collier there, who was a great, great performer and great singer. He passed away not too long ago. Uh, and uh, some other very talented people. There were a lot of talented people around Chicago back then. But that was the scene, it was on the, in the north side. And, and well, the folk there, thing yeah. was really starting to come down, you know, because uh -huh. this is now 66. Okay. Folk rock came in and everybody wanted to have a band. So there's still a remnants. That's where the Earl of Old Town comes in uh -huh. because nobody wants to, to have a folk club anymore. The school is, is still doing okay, but we were starting to have some problems because um, the neighborhood was getting very difficult. Uh -huh. In fact, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, somebody had the bright idea to turn the school into the Country and Western Center. Really? <laughs> Yeah, it was not a good idea. About 67, we had all these pictures of every folk singer you can imagine. Ed McCurdy, John Jacob Niles, Pete Seeger, of course. And we had a, it was a, somebody's really dumb idea. It wasn't wind. And I don't think Dawn was nuts about it, but it was, the moment was really down. You know, the folk singer was already so we had to take them all down. We put up Buck Owens, Lefty Frizzell, all these people. And we're going to be the country and western center of Chicago. WJJD radio at the top 40 country. And this is the place to come to to buy those records. And we're going to have all these country and western records. I, John thought it was a bad idea, but what we did it. We were, they were really suffering. And so we'd have... Uh, uh, an afternoon, you uh -huh. know, of uh, give a, giving away records, and the people, the only people we drew into the store were people that didn't have a lot of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> if a dentist was on duty there, he would have made a fortune. <laughs> I shouldn't say it was. It was a lot of people from uptown would uh -huh. come in, and they weren't buying anything. They were poor people. Right. It was a complete bust. I think we did. They did it for about a month. Or two. So is that they, did they change the classes that they're doing? No, or? they're still doing classes. But the classes, the store. They uh, were trying to save the store, the club. Uh, but I mean, there was still some things happening around there that were interesting. You know, we had a recording studio there, uh -huh. and uh, you know, I remember my brother Fred brought in John Denver. He was living in Chicago at the time. And John just started to write some songs, and Fred would bring them in and record some. They were pretty good songs, too. None of them ever made his albums. Was that when, when he's with the Chad Mitchell Trio? He was trio? with the Mitchell yeah, Trio, yeah. yeah. The Mitchell Trio, right? Mitchell yeah. Trio, yeah. He was yeah. great. He was yeah. great. You know, so there, we were going along a little bit here and there, and uh, but it was, I'm thinking 67 is what, yeah, 67. No, not 60. 67, everything started to turn. Mm -hmm. There was a great snowstorm of 67 and the store got burglarized. These guys came through the sewer system and took all the instruments. And there was a guy named Eddie Belchelski around who was a well-known artist, junkie. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he was a character. Uh -huh. 
and he got him. He knew all these things. He got him all. He got all the stuff back. <laughs> they, like, they sent him off to find him. They, I stuff. came out. All of a sudden, he came up. He came up with a truck, and there were all the instruments. <laughs> and that was the year Win Strachey was going to run for alderman, and uh, he decided not to. And uh, so '67 and '68, that's everything was. You know, there were riots. We were right down the street from Cabrini Green. We we're closing the stores at eight o'clock, and uh, you know, it looked like they were going to close the school. Uh-huh. And when, because he knew the area so well, said that we're going to move over to Aldine Hall, over on Armitage and Fremont. Now, I had never been that far west. I was living with Corky Siegel in Old Town. Uh-huh. You know, we—that's where we knew. Well, we didn't know anything west of there. Yeah. Larrabee was just, uh, this townhouse is there now, was, uh, there was a, a place called Moody's Pub, uh-huh. which has for years been up north. There was uh, 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 that crazy guy, uh, I'm having a seniors moment now, uh, Taproot Pub. Uh-huh. You know, but the rest of it was old hotels and just a funky area. And where Wynn wanted to go was, uh, you know, this, it, it, there was nothing but Puerto Rican nightclubs and bars, but it was m- much better and more accessible than where we were because they thought they were in a lot of business. Matter of fact, nobody ever got molested. There were heroin addicts on the corner of Armitage and Fremont selling drugs at 8 o'clock in the morning instead of selling heroin. But students never got molested or bothered, and uh, you know the rest is history. Uh, it worked out because yeah. I, I just came back from California, and remember John telling me they were moving, and and I got my, my job at the folklore center when they moved. I always had a job there, no matter what. But they came close, you know, so it was a good move. So our, is, uh, is Steve Goodman around yet? And he's, I met him in about 66, 67. Uh-huh. You know, he's, he's, going, he's around and we became close because he was closer to my age. Everybody around there was around the, the Earl of Old Town. Uh-huh. Um, we were hanging around the Earl of Old Town. Earl started having folk music with my brother Fred in 66. When everybody was getting rid of folk music. Now, and how old are you at that time? Um, I was uh, twenty. So there, and there was that. Was there age restrictions there? Or uh, yeah, I could come by and just have a coke and stuff. Okay. But you know, I was living with Corky at the time, and he told me about the Revolt Town. He said, you know, they're gonna start having music there. Uh-huh. And then Fred started performing there, and it was rough. I mean, mm-hmm. he did five shows a night. Wow. Uh, a lot of tourists. Tourists were there. It was very noisy. And, uh, but, you know, after a time, when Bonnie Colac came to town, it changed. You know, she really turned that room into a, um, more of a listening room. It was always kind of rough, though, because you had selling booze and waitresses are running around, and uh, the bartenders, who are really good guys, they hated folk music. <laughs> <laughs> These were guys that were all from the jazz uh-huh. when they were in high school, you know, the Stan Kenton big band. And, and they got to listen to us croaking <laughs> murder ballads, you know. And, but they all became friends to us, and they were a lot more 15 years older than us. And uh, But Steve was close to my age, so uh-huh. we have had a... But then he got sick, you know, 
Right. And we didn't see him for a while. And then uh-huh. he came back. But this is when, still in the, in the, in the early 70s, yeah. the 60s? No, yeah. this is 60. Yeah. Let me see. I met him. It was 67. In 68, he was around. And then about four or five months, we didn't see him. And Bonnie went to visit him, and he started writing songs. Uh-huh. You know, and he... Uh, Wrote a song about his for his brother. It was beautiful. It was a song for David. Song for right, David. Yeah. yeah. And she said, "You know, I visited Steve, and he's writing songs. He wrote City New Orleans, and my brother Fred was the first person to ever sing it. We used to uh, at, once a year. We used to go to Second City and do benefits for the North Park College, mm-hmm. and it was great because the place was packed, and it was on the stage of Second City." And uh, it was like, you know, we were working the clubs all year round, you know, really working hard, yeah. dealing with drunks and everything. And here we are, you know, working a full house and it was a lot of fun. I remember one year I worked Second City, I was doing a routine, I was just talking, I was getting some laughs. I wasn't saying anything really funny. I was getting some laughs. So I started talking more, I getting some more laughs. And then I felt, I turned around and it was John Belushi. He had a window there and he was making. <laughs> I thought I was doing pretty good. It was John. It was... So, you know, by 69, uh, I, uh, I came back from San Francisco. I went out there in 68 and came back. And the quiet uh, night, uh, which was at Belmont, was originally on Well Street, it was a small place. And Richard Harding, who opened, had Poor Richards, which was on Sedgwick, but that was becoming really difficult over there. I mean, it was getting really dangerous, you know, so he had to move. And uh, so Fred and I were working there, and this is 69 Bonnie. Uh, there wasn't much folk music around. Earl had stuff going on, that was about it. And then Bonnie started working at the Earl of Old Town and gathering a very large following. Mm -hmm. You know, people really came to her. And I was writing some songs at the time, and she was doing about three of my songs. And so I was getting a little bit of reputation as a songwriter. But I I had another job. I was a color processor. I was, you know, doing Mm -hmm. different things. So that's around, you write Jazz Man around. Right? I wrote Jazz yeah, on 69, yeah, so yeah. What, what went into that song? What were you yeah, thank you. How, how did that come together for Not you? a lot, that's why. I, <laughs> it came together, uh, I tell people, I, you know, people have opinions on songwriting, and I feel a little uncomfortable talking about songwriting because you don't want to, I don't know, back then, there's a bunch of us writing songs, but that wasn't the only thing we were doing. We liked good songs, you know. Steve Goodman loved, well, he loved every song that was ever written. It was annoying. You know, I'd say, yeah, that song isn't very good. He'd say, oh, no, no, it's got a good bridge, you know. Something. So, I didn't really write a lot of songs. What I did was, I was playing banjo, like I said, and I would look at a folk song book because uh-huh. I figured well, it's got a song written already, the lyrics, you know, a song like Lord Lovell. Mm-hmm. Where have you been, Lord Lovell? Mm-hmm. And I'd put the music to it. 
played a banjo. Then, later on, maybe I threw some words to it, you know? And this is a good example of it. I was fooling around with this open tuning here. I never did, I never really performed Jazz Man this way. I wrote it this way. It was... There's a guy from the East Coast, part of that Cambridge scene. Uh -huh. He was older than everybody. His name was Rick von Schmidt, Eric von Schmidt. And just he made a record that was a seminal record, him and Rolf Kahn. And it was they, they took a lot of songs from Library Congress and did them their way. And um, all the Bohemian kids had that record. And I loved Eric von Schmidt. I got to meet him many years later. He had this uh, record out, and he had this song called Down On Me. shapes this open this is an open D tuning okay this is a D chord uh, open open if you could find a song with one chord in it <laughs> you can eat a sandwich <laughs> I haven't found that song yet though I'm looking for that song but I was fooling around uh, I live in a 509 West Armitage. I was a color processor at that time, and I, was, I wasn't playing that much guitar. I was just fooling around and drinking and, you know, chasing waitresses and stuff. And me being a young kid, you know, just looking for some good, clean fun. <laughs> and I was starting to fool around this. Just like that chord. Mary, Martin, Luke, and John All got disciples that are dead and gone Looks like everybody in this whole wide world Is down on me Down on me, down on me Looks like everybody is down on me I had that going on and I you know I was fooling around with uh, a couple of lyrics this and that and I was in a, a shoe store and I heard a guy say shoes are ready red hot and ready you know I thought, oh, that's pretty cool you know red hot and ready you know like that and I was fooling around with some uh, lyrics and I was in love with this waitress at Second City she was five years older than me and she was beautiful and her boyfriend was a mobster. 
And but she looked at me like a little brother, you know, and she spent a lot of time. She was being kept. And the waitresses at Second City in those days, because a lot of women in their late 60s, there weren't that many women lawyers or doctors. A lot of them were trying to find great waitressing jobs to go to school. Uh, she found a mob boyfriend to get her an apartment. So, and she was my pal. And I kept hoping, you know, <laughs> hope against hope that one day. But. Uh, I was uh, actually at who else was in love with was Nelson Algren, the guy who wrote. And we were at the bar. I was a little, he was waiting for her one time. And I was a little drunk. And I'm sitting there next to Nelson Algren. He's waiting for Judy. And I'm waiting for Judy. And she's, you know, doing the same thing with him. She's like to be pals with you. That's about it. And I, I said to him, you know, that book you wrote, I like the movie better. <laughs> I just I was being passive aggressive, I guess. Because he was waiting for Judy. And neither one of us are being involved with, you know, there's nothing happening. We're sh shooting bumper pool with her and drinking boiler makers, you know. And he doesn't say anything, he just kind of looks at me. And I realized I was, I don't lie, I shouldn't have, leave the guy alone. It was a little And then five minutes later he says, why? True story. I said, well, in the movie, Frank Sinatra gets cured and he walks down the street with Kim Novak. In your book, he hangs himself with a coat hanger. And he just looked at me. That was it. Anyway, I'm going up. Anyway, this woman, I spent a lot of time with her and I was nuts about her. And she drank a lot. And she's. And I thought of her, and she had dark eyes, black-eyed, sweet thing. And I always thought, you know, if she should stop drinking. She's drinking too much. So I had these little ideas here. So I, was, I tell you what, it's a true story. I just, five minutes I wrote the song. It was ruminating in my head. Because I figured, I wanted to write a song that people would sing. I didn't want to write a song just you know, if I wrote a song, I had an idea, I want someone to sing it. Because right. if they don't sing it, it's not much of a song. I mean, that's just my, the way I, my, what I was looking for. Otherwise, there's so many great songs out there to learn. Right. And I still feel that way. So I started fooling around with this idea. And I had the song done, and I sang it for Steve. Bonnie Kolag and my brother Fred, and I just knew I wrote a really good song. I could just, they all looked at me like, wow, you know, and he just knew it, mm -hmm. you know, they just, you know, and they all, all did it, wanted to do it right away. And it went like this, it's the way it was written. Black-eyed sweet thing, sugar loose, call me when I'm clean off of one-way juice. Honey, I'm a jazz man with the Sunnyland blues. I'm just off the street trying a trick or two. Trick or two. Trick or two. Honey, I'm a jazz man trying a trick or two.
Hold me up, won't you let me fly? Give me a sweet, kind spirit to swing by. Honey, won't you call out your train time? I'm waiting on you for your one slow ride. One slow ride, one slow ride. Need to know your train time to catch your ride. Way up and out, wide and deep Put it to use and then we put it to sleep Red hot and ready and light on my feet I'm Easy to get to and I'm easy to please Easy to please, easy to please When you're a jazz man you get easy to please Black-eyed sweet thing, sugar loose Call me when I'm clean off of one-way juice Honey, I'm a jazz man with the Sunnyland blues Just off the street trying a trick or two A trick or two, trick or two Honey, I'm a jazz man trying a trick or two Easy to please, easy to please When you're a jazz man you get easy to please Thank you, thank you Thank you so much, thanks So what happened to the waitress? Boy, I tell you, I, I saw her many years later and they didn't look too good. It was too sad. <laughs> too sad. She was. A, she was. This, you know, that's too bad. Yeah, a lot of drinking going on back then in early seventies. Uh, uh, I mean, I did a lot of it myself. But that's what. And Chicago was a saloon town, so the music, everything was done. And mm-hmm. you know, this is. Uh, I can't believe how many times we were we go on stage and we have a scotch and soda <laughs> and a cigarette coming out of our <laughs> and uh, that was you know we, we're young and foolish and having a good good time actually people said well, you had a good time didn't you I said well I don't know I got heartburn a lot <laughs> so I thought Rolaids was a breath mint before that <laughs> yeah it was pretty wild in, in those days it wasn't a lot of drugs around the folk thing at all you it know, didn't creep in, really? Until cocaine came in, uh-huh. and that changed everything. The bar thing wasn't romantic anymore. See, I, I thought the bar thing was very romantic. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, there were, there were no sports bars. Right. The bars were, they were cafe pubs. You know, they had no TVs for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them would play classical music behind the bar, Judy Collins. And uh, people always looked kind of good when they went out casually, you know. Uh, and it was a way to meet people. And I, I, I went for it. I thought it was terrific. When cocaine came around later on, then everything changed. First of all, you couldn't use a washroom. Like if you were... <laughs> If you were going to go out that evening, people would say, if you got to go, go now. You're not, you're not getting into a washroom. 
nobody knew anything about cocaine. I mean, it was um, uh, late 60s, 70s. Uh, we, the song, the song told it all. Cocaine's for horses is not for men. You know, uh, I didn't know anybody that did cocaine. Uh, except I remember the first person I, I met that did cocaine later on. I won't mention his name. He's a famous, famous guy, but I'm not a, you know. And uh, he came into the bathroom. This is much later on. And, and he, I said, what is that? And he looked at me and said, kid, with your nose, you don't want to know. <laughs> People used to keep it from me. They'd say, don't, don't show Ed, you know. Oh, he Ed doesn't care. He doesn't do any cocaine. Well, he might change his mind. You see that guy's nose? <laughs> Everything, the conversations change. Uh -huh. Really, I was very happy to be in bars. I liked it. I thought it was something special. I liked bartending. You know, I remember when the school, a uh, bunch of people from school opened up the Fifth Peg Pub across the street. That was my first bartending job, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and they had some music there in the back room for a while. This is when John Prime first played. So I loved the whole thing, but then cocaine came around and everything changed. Uh, people were just, they were out later, you know, back in those- The music changed, the music they played? Well, you know, I, you know, that's a good, I, I'm sure it did, but there wasn't much cocaine around the Earl of Old Town. That was, because it came, as that was winding down, you know, it came in the 80s pretty much. Um, our club, you know, uh, we had uh, mostly straight people who liked folk music. Uh, people, some of the people at the bar went in the washroom, I'm sure. But it, uh, the, I'm talking about the places that were non-music places that I liked, because I liked to do that. I liked a good conversation, hanging around, you know. You worked as a bartender. I worked as a bartender all my life, yeah, yeah. basically. Uh -huh. That's what my, this is a hobby. Uh -huh. You could probably tell. <laughs> it's always been a hobby. I never made a living from this. Uh, just a little while in the early 70s mm -hmm. I had one year where I, I that's all I did but after that I, I wanted to get in the club business we had the I had the opportunity uh -huh. we opened a place called Somebody Else's Troubles right. with Steve and Fred and Earl and Duke and, and, and but again cocaine wasn't at that point it was later like 79, 80 so earlier on though you open up the club mm -hmm. and uh was, was that, did that feel like your thing? Like, were you thinking, oh, I wish I was traveling around playing guitar? Or no. Or you were just happy oh, to be doing Oh, that? no, I went on the road. I was the kind of guy that would go on the road. For, I didn't do it a lot. Yeah. For, for, I'd, go, I'd get a bunch of gigs for, for 11 days. Mm -hmm. Gigs that paid $50 a night. And I would stay at the Hyatt. <laughs> and he needed French restaurants. I'd come home owing $3,000. <laughs> and I was like a kid you send to summer camp. I'd go, uh, Goodman got me a, a little bit of a tour out east one time, and I was gone for two days, and I'd call up and go, how's everybody doing? Well, we're doing the same as we were 48 hours ago. <laughs> no, I didn't like it at all. I went out east a few times, and I did a, Freddie and I went to Colorado, and we played a club. They were they held us over because they were closing, so they didn't want to book another act. <laughs> I spent all my money on cowboy clothes. Boy, boy, did I look ridiculous when I came home. I got a picture of that. 
So I didn't like to travel. Uh-huh. I, I really didn't. I did a little, very little bit. I went to Georgia yeah. and did a few things. And no, I, I wanted to stay home and be around mm-hmm. the neighborhood and the, the, uh, the, the bars and, and friends I knew. I didn't want to go on a, a you, you had to love it. I didn't love it. Well, I think I think we're gonna have to do a part two another oh, time. Okay, well, you get me talking. We're gonna get you. We're gonna have to start it 1970 onward next time. I it's think. I'm gonna be 70 years old right, well, in, uh, in February. We'll do a birthday special. That's right. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I remember my dad. I used to always ask him as he got older, uh, he turned 68, and I said, how does it feel to be 68? Kind of like 67. <laughs> okay, what's, well, thank what's, you. What's one song you keep, you keep going back to that you really, what? over the years, oh, maybe, so well, many. that you'd want to close out with? That. Oh, I love this song. Bob Dylan. You know, Bob Dylan didn't play for many years. You probably knew that. Then he came back on a, did a tour in 74, and he played Chicago. It was his first, it was the biggest show going. It was Bob Dylan's back. He played in Chicago Stadium. He came into the Earl of Old Town the night before because he heard about the scene there. He knew John and Steve by then. There weren't many people there. He was with a bunch, he was about with five people. I didn't recognize him. I, the only thing I thought was there was a guy with sunglasses on. I saw this guy walking with, I thought, what kind of schmuck wears sunglasses on? <laughs> now everybody wears sunglasses. But back then, you, you, were, you were, something's wrong with you wearing sunglasses. And, uh, I didn't know that was him. I walked out with Earl. We were going to dinner, and he turned to me and said, you know, that's Dylan, Dylan's. And then we went out. We used to go out to all these different bars, you know, places, we'd, music clubs or whatever. And he called the waitress, Ricky, and he said, what's he drinking? She said, uh, orange juice. He said, keep the glass. Put a rubber band around it. And she did. They sold 300 glasses to Bob Dylan. (laughs) Somebody at the bar said, How much orange juice did this guy get? Buckets of rain, buckets of tears, all them buckets coming out of my ears. Buckets of moonbeams in my hand. You've got all the love, honey, baby, I can stand. I've been bleak, hard like an oak. I saw pretty people disappear like smoke. Friends will arrive, friends can disappear. If you call me, honey, baby, I'll be near. 
I like your style, I like your fingertips. I like the way you move your hips. I love the cool way you look at me. Everything about you is gonna bring me misery. Oh, little red wagon and a little red bike Ain't no monkey, but I know what I like I like the way you love me strong and slow I'll take you with me, honey, when you wanna go Oh, life is harsh, life can be a bust Do what you do and you do what you must I Do what you must do do it for you, honey baby, can't you tell? Buckets of rain, buckets of tears, all them buckets coming out of my ears, buckets of moonbeams in my hand. You got all the love, honey baby, I can stand. Oh, you got all the love, honey baby, I can stand. You know, I was talking so much and having such a good time, I forgot we were supposed to do a song together with the Bubs. Oh, no, we're good. You're good? Yeah, you do another one. You do one more and then we're done. Can I do one more yeah. with them? Yeah. Oh, come on. Let's do our hit. Let's do it. No. I, I can't go to bed at night unless I... <laughs> come on. This is... A... This is a C, I know a C chord, you know. Is there a teacher in the house? Listen, I work on Is there a teacher in the house? I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't. When I teach guitar at the school, I always wonder, is there a music teacher around to help me out? My music teacher wouldn't let me sing. And I, I fixed her. We were supposed to buy her a record. They gave me the money. My God, got her. I bought her a Tennessee Ernie Ford record. I just won't play that string. I saw Jesus on the cross on that hill called Calvary. Say, hate mankind, what he's done to you. Said, talk of love, not hate. Things to do, it's getting late. I've so little time, I'm only passing through. Passing through. Passing through. Sometimes happy, sometimes blue. Glad that I ran into you. Tell people that. Now you're out, what are you gonna do? 
I was at Franklin Roosevelt's side Just a while before he died He said one world must come out of World War II Yankee, Russian, white or tan Everyone deserves a good health care plan We're brothers and sisters We're just passing through Passing through more time.